Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Taylor Leanne Chandler, who is a former sign language interpreter and crisis management consultant that came into fame after it was revealed that she was involved with Olympic gold medal swimmer Michael Phelps. Today, Taylor is the transgender health coordinator for us helping us people into living incorporated in Washington, D.C. She is also part of the national organization or national organizing team for the National Trans Visibility March. She is a published author and national speaker on gender rights. She is also part of the marketing team for Capital Pride Alliance and an executive producer with Capital Pride and Capital Trans Pride in Washington, D.C. She sits on the board of We the People, May Is, All Foundation for Washington, D.C. She has a degree in social and behavioral science as well as her VQAS in American Sign Language from the state of Virginia. She was nominated in 2006 for the Energizer Battery Keep Going Hall of Fame. She has appeared in Glamour, Time, and Cosmopolitan as well as The Howard Stern Show. E! News and Entertainment Tonight, and many other news and TV radio shows. Today, Taylor is married to Matthew Meager Walker. I I believe I'm saying the middle name, right? Uh, Since June 10th, 2019, and they have two kids together. Uh, Today, Taylor Chandler and I, we discuss uh, her battles with anorexia, borderline personality disorder, and growing up transgender. We get into the physiology of it, the science behind it. And uh, obviously we explore all the emotions and the feelings and uh, the thoughts that go along with it. And of course, we give you practical solutions and, and tips and advice for how to cope with managing your emotions. Uh, Taylor's life is such a, a roller coaster, as she mentions, and a lot of us are, are feel like we're on a roller coaster right now. So even if you're not transgendered, uh, you can be going through a, a myriad of emotions or a roller coaster for so many different reasons, especially now, uh, given the current uh, climate of the world. Um, and so all these things are applicable to anyone listening in who may feel like they're struggling with their mental health and may feel like they're struggling with people in their life. Uh, you know, so much of what we're going through have to do with the people in our life and our environment. Go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. And with that said, let's jump into the episode. Are you in D.C.? I live right outside of D.C., in between D.C. and Baltimore, but in Maryland. Uh, I work in the city, and yeah. then I come home, and I have country living. <laughs> oh, you, you got like a farm or something? Are you, are you growing like uh, lemons and, uh, and, and squash? What you got out there in the yard? I wish. We used to. Um, we're on an acre, but around us, everybody has everything from chickens to pigs to horses and everything in between. And a lot of them do their own gardens and eat their own eggs, slaughter their own chickens, their pigs, like 
progressive young people. <laughs> well, you know, one of the cool things uh, that I, I read about you, amongst the many cool things, is that uh, you went to school for sign language. I did. I'm currently taking sign language. Uh, I actually have my uh, lesson tonight. I just started taking it like a, a few months ago. But uh, what got what made you, you decide to do that? You know, part of it is I love uh, you're talking about, you know, dating someone in the Navy. And I love military movies. I love war films. And one of the things I've always noticed is how much or how little verbal communication there is and how much hand signals are involved. And I was thinking like how uh, valuable that skill is to have like these verbals. I mean, I think as a people and especially when you're in a relationship, you naturally start to develop verbal, nonverbal cues of, you know, like, Hey, let's get out of here. Or, uh, why'd you say that? Or, you know, like, you know, whether it's a squeeze of the hand or I look, we, we develop right. it, but um, I, there's something uh, powerful about it. It, it. To me, I almost feel like we should all know sign language, it, you know, right? uh, for <laughs> it just seems like, especially now that we're all wearing a mask and everybody sounds like they're, they're ordering, you know, through a, a drive through um, we should sign language just seems like the natural uh, evolution uh, of things, or it should at least be the foundation of the language, not cursive. I don't know where cursive came from, but <laughs> like, like sign language and then maybe cursive, you know? Right. Well, for me, the reason I went into it is I worked in corporate America and I lived in Florida at the time and three hurricanes hit like back to back to back. And I ended up getting laid off. Then I went into consulting, was working for myself but it was like a roller coaster ride. And so my best friend was an interpreter. And so one day I was at his house and I saw a check for two weeks and it was like $9,000. Now I thought, you know, for two weeks, but they bill 30 days net. Now I know that, but I was like, I want a job that regardless of war, weather, economy, I'm employed. No matter where I live in the U.S., I'm employed. And so I went back to school and learned sign language. And I graduated in 2008 after doing a two-year interpreter training program. And I did it until, I did it full-time until 2014. And then um, I did it sporadically. And then in 2016, I went back to it for a minute. But, you know, it's kind of like what they say if you don't use it, you lose it. And so I wasn't as, I wasn't at the level of being an interpreter. I could like conversate and keep my own with my deaf friends or around deaf population. But, um, I wasn't at the level of an interpreter anymore after two years of being on hiatus. Well, oh, and that makes complete sense because my, my sign language teacher, uh, she uh, interprets for, you know, people who call in and they, they need services done. And, uh, and yep, so BRS. She, BRS. And, uh, you know, she talked about having to go back to to, to take a, um, a course for, you know, all the different uh, uh, gender pronouns and, you know, to, how to say transgender or. Uh, intersex yep. and all these, all the different and binary. 
uh, but also with COVID, of like, you know, how do you sign coronavirus? And, and so, all you know, ter- there's always these new terms that get introduced into our uh, vernacular or words that just become more prevalent uh, over time that uh, you, you definitely have to stay up on. Absolutely. I miss it sometimes, but um, I wish things had worked out differently with interpreting. But after the events of 2014, um, it just wasn't in the cards. It wasn't in the cards? Uh, What do you mean? Um, After my life became public, it made it almost impossible to interpret because interpreting requires anonymity, confidentiality, and at the time that I was outed and in the public eye, um, it was right around the same time that they lifted the embargo on Cuba. And so news organizations from all around the world were here in D.C., and it made my world become a bubble in like two seconds. And I went from like working at the White House, the Pentagon, on the Hill, to not working at all. And then being like emotionally bankrupt and not even able to do the job because of anxiety. That had to be like, I can't even imagine the, the cycles of grief and that you had to go through to, to deal with that. It's when you, when you go to school and you build your life up in one way and then it seemingly overnight to have it stripped from you. Can you talk more about the events of 2014 and, and what happened? Absolutely. Um, that summer, um, you know, it had been a year since I was divorced. Um, like most people I got on Tinder, you know, and started swiping and, you know, some, somehow the algorithms weren't always fair because I had like the parameters of the ages I wanted, but somehow all it's just like I was a magnet for 28 to 32. And at the time I was 41 and I was like, how is this possible? But in August of that year, um, I started talking to someone and getting to know them and started dating them. And then actually almost a year ago to the day, um, or six years ago to the day, I should say, um, that person got a DUI. And all of a sudden, our private life, our boring, goofy, lovey, dovey life became public. And in the midst of that, people wanted to know who I was. And for those that may not know, that person that I was dating is the most decorated Olympian of all time. And But at the time, he was retired he was not swimming, (laughs) you know, his hair was like, it was just, we were boring. Like we would watch like Jimmy Fallon. We would watch, um, or look at this, um, social media dude, fuck Jerry and just giggle. We played games, we watched sports. Um, and then all of a sudden my life was turned upside down. And at first I was described as this tall model type. And then people in the area, the neighborhood of that part of Baltimore, um, Canton, Bells Point started leaking stories about me. And then because of me being an interpreter and the fact my car was there, um, 
they ran my plate and my credentials with Maryland, Virginia, and DC had my name, my address, my phone number, which is part of interpreting. And he ended up like a week and a half after the DUI going to rehab. And before he left, I literally said to him, I said, you know, what this is between us is new. Is it ruined? And he told me, absolutely not. I'm just going to rehab. And, you know, my um, management team, um, Drew and Peter, you know, they'll take care of you. Here's a different email address because I won't have my phone or access to my normal emails. And off he went. And then the stories just started evolving and people wanted to know more about me. And then I was a cougar. And then the day that he got out of rehab, November 19th of 2014, I was on the cover of magazines and newspapers all around the world. I was the lead story on everything from TMZ to Entertainment Tonight to E! News that Michael Phelps' girlfriend had been born a man. And my whole world came crashing down. And, you know, I had lived 41 years of my life stealth. And the reality of it is I was not born a man because I always think, oh, my God, my mother's poor uterus. Um, but I was assigned male at birth. Um, my genitalia was um, not distinguishable. And because of that, they did um, gender mutilation surgery to make me fit in a binary world, assign me male. And then once I was able to talk and start walking, it was clear they'd made the wrong decision. And so, but here I am at 41 and everybody's in my life. They think they know me. And I had never told girlfriends. I'd never told people I dated, married, nothing. And so all of a sudden this was out there and it was a lot to deal with. Um, it was devastating actually. Um, it was a very low time. And one of the things that's been frustrating is his platform now is mental health. Nothing wrong with that. But when he tells the story of what happened from September 29th to October 5th or 6th, whatever it was, is my story. He was fine. He was surrounded by lawyers, family. There was no alone in his house, curled up, wanting to kill himself. Um, he was actually encouraging me and being like that for me because media was blowing me up. I literally turned my phone off and it was awful, absolutely awful. And once again, before he went to rehab, I was like, you know, some stories had already come out, but not that. And, you know, I had some warning before the story was coming out and it gave me time to warn my family of what was coming. It gave me time to tell my ex-husband who flew home from Afghanistan so we could tell 
his family and my stepdaughter. Um, and I told Michael in rehab, um, and then the world found out, but the headlines were all clickbait. It was like, they called me everything they could think of. And then in the first paragraph, born intersex, da, 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 da. And since then, I've gotten way more comfortable with labels and I've gone into advocacy and activism. So not only, I kind of explain it this way. I was born intersex. I see transgender as a verb and now I'm a female, but that's still hard for most of America to understand. And at the time this happened, Caitlyn Jenner had not come out to the world either. That was like the following year. So it was a lot. First of all, thank you for sharing that story. And, uh, and um, I can't imagine like how devastating that all had to be for you. And um, just uh, to feel, I mean, first of all, to have the news uh, like bully you in a, in a, in a way. And um, I want to go back to that moment where you talked about you're curled up and you're alone and you talked about how Michael Phelps, you know, he was surrounded by people. How did you uncurl yourself? How, how did you, um, how did you start to, oh, like, what were those? How, oh, first of all, how long were you curled up for? Were, are we on a couch for a few days, weeks, months? And then how did uh, we start to. It was, um, I, I managed to, I don't, it was a weird time because I have my migraines. Um, you know, they afford me a lot of prescription medication. And unfortunately when you're in crisis, that's the worst thing to have around. If you're someone that their emotional side is fragile, like mine was. And so for that first month of October, um, I was pretty much, a zombie. Um, I stayed in bed. I was at friend, a friend's house. Um, and I mean, I wasn't showering. I wasn't eating. I, I, I was just keeping myself numb and letting things happen like all around me. And in the past I'd worked in crisis management, ironically enough, but when it was my turn to be on the center stage, I did everything I would tell a client not to do. And um, in October, the end of October, I ended up getting a crisis management team. Um, actually, I take that back. It was the middle of October. And the first thing they did was delete all my social media. And that wasn't good enough for me. And so I opened new ones because you know, if we're not on social media and it's not recorded or a like or a tweet, is it really happening? That was kind of, I guess, my thought process at the time. And I think my first public outing was the Human Rights Campaign National Dinner the end of October. And I had gone from a size six to like a two, four, and I'm five, eight. And have really big boobs. And so for me to be a two or a four almost looks like a, a brat stall. And 
it was very nerve wracking for me to be at that event because in my mind, everybody knew who I was and was looking at me in hindsight. I mean, maybe 20% of the people were looking at me or knew who I was. And the other 80% of that was me being delusional. Um, but it felt real. And, you know, through the month of November, I wanted to protect him. I felt because he was in rehab, I didn't want to lose him. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And I didn't know how this was going to play out. And then I guess the probably like the first week in November, um, I, at this point, not only had a crisis management team, but a publicist, which I guess seems odd now looking back, but I knew her. She was someone that I was friends with and friends of mine that were in the public eye. She was their publicist and she said she'd help me. And she was contacted And that's how I knew the story was going to break. And I was given the option of, do you want to cooperate or we're just going to run the story? And foolishly, I thought I could tell my story and defend myself. And that's how it would play out. But they took almost everything I said and manipulated it to be everything but my story. And when November 19th happened, I was in Virginia Beach. I was on the 18th floor of in the owner's suite of a hotel. And when the story broke and I read the headlines, I was like, you know, I felt like as a as a society, we took a uh two steps forward and then a hundred backwards. And I felt like my whole world was crashing around me. And even though I told Michael and told the people close to me, it's not like I knew how to operate with, quote unquote, the world knowing. And in that moment, I wanted to kill myself. I wanted to jump off that balcony. And to this day, I can't even begin to say, to explain how just I was, my insides were aching and hurting. It hurt so bad. It was physical, not just in my head. And, you know, from November 19th forward, it just got worse and worse. Um, the headlines, the everything. And once again, if I'd ever had any thought of doing, um, sign language interpreting, that was when it was completely, the flame was extinguished. And, you know, as time went on and we got into December and Christmas was coming, I was like, how am I going to support myself? You know, it's not like I was independently wealthy. And I went from making like eight to $10,000 a month to zero, but money was still going out. And my publicist at the time, um, Lainey Spicer, said that, you know, I was getting inquiries from like penthouse and playboy, everything was sexual in nature that was coming at me. And, you know, 
ironically enough, looking back, I'm sure it'll be funny for people to think, but I was prudish. You know, I was raised by grandparents. Um, my thoughts and my thought process on sex and sexuality was so warped and, you know, prudish. And, you know, then I think it was like a couple weeks before Christmas, vivid called. And, you know, I think at this point, everybody knows who vivid is because that's what made Kim Kardashian famous. Um, you know, all the vivid girls like Jenna Jameson, Tara Patrick, and, you know, they, Lainey was like, you need to see what you're worth. And in some weird universe, I mean, it was kind of exciting and thrilling to think, oh my God, what am I worth? (laughs) And they offered me a million dollars. And I was like, holy cow. And as bills and everything were coming in, it made sense to take them up on their offer. And so I signed on the dotted line. And a few days before Christmas, I was in LA and I filmed a celebrity sex tape going for the gold based on my love affair with Michael Phelps. That had to feel, um, I would imagine, bittersweet. Because he's the love of your life. And and now it's, um, and and not because of the financial situation. Here's uh, somebody else filling in for the love of your life. And so I, I can't imagine the emotions, the thoughts, the feelings, all the things that, that went into that, that you were feeling at that moment. And it also had to be a sense of relief because now you're going to get your bills paid. But, you know, obviously that's not how most people envision wanting to do that. Um, you know, the thing about it was I was born in a body at war with itself. Um, I spent a lifetime, um, trying everything in my power to make sure no one knew of my past and bury it. And when all of my life unraveled publicly, um, I felt like I needed to defend my womanhood. And at the time that I filmed going for the gold, I actually filmed two films. Um, only one was released. Um, it was empowering. And I know feminists are like, what, you know, objectifying and all. I I hear it all. I understand it. I see both sides. But in that moment, when people were calling me everything but human, and certainly not a female, in that moment, I wanted to show the world, I am woman. Hear me roar, literally. And, you know, I was naked before the world already, is what it felt like in my head. And so why not do it literally? And there was power in it. And Vivid is like, I guess, the Disney world of porn. And so I had directors and boom and lighting and hair people and makeup artists. And 
I had multiple directors and, you know, it was, it was shot at this amazing mansion and I was treated like I was like some Hollywood royalty, um, which I'm sure to most people sounds bizarre in reference to an adult film. But at if you're really into porn, going for the gold isn't going to be your go-to. It's very vanilla. It truly is in a love story. I mean, there's naked, there's people having sex, but that is literally sequentially how my life with Michael unfolded. And it's, it's, I guess hot, but it's not like what I think of when I think of people that like porn and want to see, you know, freaky or something crazy or something they wouldn't do. Um, that's not the film. The second film I did that was shot at the same time, going for the gold two submission, that one probably would have sent people off the, off the rails, but, um, they didn't release it. And, you know, at this point, I don't know if they ever will, if they do or they don't, it, it will not change who I am. Um, I won't allow the world to dictate how I feel about myself ever again. Um, I did that for far too long. You know, 2015 is like a blur, um, because I didn't work. Everything was based on appearances and, you know, just, I, I literally was selling sex 24 seven and it was so outside my wheelhouse and it felt so invasive. And when you would go to fan meet and greets or whatever, you know, people thought they knew me and wanted to hug me and be close to me and tell me like stories of what their favorite part of my life was, the movie was, a article they read, an interview I did. And it was a lot. You know, when I did Howard Stern, what was crazy at the time is he was on America's Got Talent. He had a deal with NBC Universal. He had gone very conservative. Gone were the days of nakedness and craziness. Um, and I want to say he'd been on there quite a few years. And my, my publicist was like, I'd already shot the film, but it wasn't released yet when I actually did Howard Stern. And she was like, if you have any chance to get naked, take it. Um, and I was like, okay. So as soon as I walked in at this point, I'm really thin. Um, I'd lost a lot of weight from the stress. And so I'd probably gone from a, I was a size six before all this happened. And I probably at this point was like a zero or two. And so I look like Barbie, um, five, eight blonde, big boobs and everything else was little. I looked like I was going to tip over. And as soon as I walked in, he's like, Oh my God, how big are your boobs? And I'm like 34 triple D. And he's like, let me, he's like, can I see them? And I was like, sure, why not? And that was all she wrote. And later in the interview, um, I ended up getting naked and, you know, 
I can honestly say, and he said it before the world, that Howard Stern said, you know, he would never have known. And yes, he would hit that. And, you know, at the time, I'm sure people are like, if you didn't like all this stuff that was going on, why did you keep doing it? Well, we never talk about how once you're built up and it is all about likes and it is all about attention and then that starts to go away, that's crippling in itself too. Um, You get used to it. You get used to the first class. You get used to the red carpet. You get used to being treated so differently. And my life was very different. And all of a sudden, it was this celeb-type life. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like you, 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 you built up one life, right? I mean, first of all, you grew up prudish, so I can't even imagine what that life was like. And then you go on to become an interpreter, and you build up that life, and that's taken away. And now you're building up uh, another life, and you know that there's such a small window for that life for most people. And so you're at the same time while you're enjoying it, you're also acutely aware of how fleeting it all is. And, and that See, has to cause part. anxiety. I didn't, um, I didn't realize how quickly there was going to be an expiration date on what was happening. And that was part of, um, what was so crippling in all of it happening is no one told me that there's a small window, partly because porn is pirated so dramatically and stolen that, you know, you only make money like the big money in the beginning, like the first six months. Then after that, it's so pirated that why would anybody pay to be a vivid member or to buy the film in a bookstore or wherever it's sold? And that was the part I didn't know. And so all of a sudden in say April or May of 2015, it's like, it felt bizarre that all of a sudden things were changing. And then in June of that year, I became part of the cover girl exhibition in Baltimore. Um, you know, Linda Carter, Wonder Woman was part of that expedition who was like my childhood idol. And once again, thrown into the limelight. And it happened all over again. But then as summer started to end, it 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 died so quickly. And then I was like, I was a Google search. I was a Wikipedia page. I I was, you know, to a lot of people a joke. You talked about to, to go back just a little bit to how we even started this part of the journey, being curled up on a couch, and you talked about, you know, because you have migraines, and so you're taking meds, and you're looking out, and now you're in this hotel, and you're thinking about jumping off the balcony. What about the people in your life? Because you said that you were raised by your grandparents. Were there, did you, have, did you feel that you had uh, support from your friends uh, at that at that point in your life, what was going on with your family and what was going on with your friends and what were the messages they were giving you? My grandparents were long since passed. Um, my father's still alive, but he's more like an uncle because he didn't raise me. I wasn't, I didn't grow up around him per se. 
And um, my father's side of the family, very conservative. My mother's side of the family was working class, hardworking, and somewhat different, but not used to all of what was happening in my life. And even in the beginning, when my family was supportive, once I did the film and that was public, a lot of family turned on me. A lot of friends turned on me. Um, Heck, people in general turned on me. My closest friend, I, I made it so difficult to be there for me because I was spiraling out of control. In 2000, I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, and but I never really, uh, like, I first of all, I never acknowledged it. I really didn't treat it, and my life is kind of like a roadmap of what borderline personality disorder looks like. And during the time of when Michael got the DUI, to November 19th, I was like, for all intents and purposes, manic. Um, You know, people understand that term when it comes to bipolar, but with borderline personality disorder, you feel everything to extremes. And it's, my, my emotions were all over the place. And I was so far gone during that time period There was no talking to me. I was really pushing everybody away and sabotaging my close relationships and any support that I really had Um, because I hated myself. I hated everything that was happening. Um, And because I didn't love myself, I, I certainly couldn't accept love or support from anybody else. And it was very dark. Even from November 19th, to January 6th when I did Howard Stern, that was all like a high period. That was when everything just seemed like it was, you know, unicorns and rainbows. But in February of that year, well, let me back up one step. When Michael got out of rehab, he ended up within a few days of that deciding to publicly acknowledge the girl that he was cheating on me with when we were together. And now they're actually married with kids. But at the time, this was very devastating for me. And he's never acknowledged or denied me. And that kind of rejection, that kind of abandonment was almost lethal. And so in February of 2015, he ended up asking her to marry him in Colorado at the Broadmoor. And that news hit me like a brick. And Howard Stern, in doing his beginning part of the show and the news, all of a sudden went from this person that was amazing, kind, supportive, funny, to someone that turned on me. And all of a sudden, I was a he, she, I was an it. They questioned whether there was any truth or validity to the things I was saying. Um, He made me out to be a laughingstock. And people that didn't like me, that hide behind computers like those 
trolls that we all know and love on social media became ruthless. And after, I want to say it was February 23rd, it was too much, absolutely too much. I was, I, I publicly lashed out at Howard Stern. Um, the backlash from his fans was brutal and I tried to kill myself, um, to such an excess and it's by the, the grace of God, I guess, that I didn't die. Um, but I should have, you know, but I guess as far as the universe was concerned, it wasn't my time. I wasn't, I hadn't done whatever it was I was supposed to do or learn the lesson or tell my story or receive the blessing, however you want to look at it. And so I was unsuccessful. And, and then I had to live that out publicly. And after that happened, I just continued to spiral down. Once I was out of the hospital and the 5150 hold, because God knows when you're borderline, you're good at talking yourself out, talking your way out of anything. And so I, I seemed completely sane. And as an interpreter, I worked at Inova hospitals. So I knew people. Um, it was very easy for me to get out from under care. And in those preceding days, um, I just stopped. I stopped eating. I restricted food. I didn't even realize it was happening. And I kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller until I collapsed in a CVS and I ended up back in the hospital on a feeding tube and I was in full-blown anorexia. Um, because even though I was unsuccessful at trying to kill myself, it didn't take away that feeling of wanting to die every day, every moment and feeling like being alive, breathing, dealing with everything was just a chore. It was overwhelming all the time. And, you know, at, at that point I was recognizable partly from my own doing because I kept fueling the stories. I kept agreeing to do interviews that were not indicative of my normal behavior or in any way, shape or form beneficial to <laughs> what was happening in my life or me going forward. So you are struggling with anorexia, prescription med, uh, I'm going to say addiction. Um, you're, you're pretty much have pushed away, as you said, people who, who are trying to love you away from you or people are just not even, um, or people have just chosen not to surround you or embrace you. And how do we move forward from there? As you, as you mentioned, how did you move forward you're collapsed. You're on the ground. How did you move forward? I moved. <laughs> I ran back to Florida where I grew up, um, where I have friends, um, and pretended life was good. Um, I adapted, I changed, I became something different. Um, and for a while it worked. Um, and then 
I met someone and it almost followed the same course as Michael down to the dates, the times, the everything. And it ended up, I ended up falling for him, dating him. He was wonderful. And then I get a phone call from this girl's father telling me that the man I'm dating is dating his daughter and that he knows who I am and my life and the public part and all that. I was devastated. And so here comes suicide attempt again. And, um, this time I woke up, but I couldn't function. I couldn't move. My mobility was taken away. My roommate found me. Once again, I found myself in a hospital, 5150, except this time people knew who I was. An orderly sold the story. It became public. And then from there, I went to rehab. Um, and it was like a devastating time. Um, but it was what needed to happen at the time. And then after rehab, not long after, um, my best friend came to Florida cause he's from there. And I went back up to DC with him and I ended up signing a contract to do interpreting at a hospital for like an extended period. And then I realized I missed it and people didn't seem to know who I was. So it was working and I moved back up here. And then in October of 2016, that's when I got professional help. Um, and, but it was still a process, um, because that was also the same year of the Olympics. And I had to relive all of this all over again. When Michael came out of retirement, did the road to Rio, was in the Olympics, broke more records, won more gold, set the world on fire. But whenever he's in the news, typically it puts me in the news. Um, and what is a catch 22 is when he's in the news, it benefits me. I, you know, I, to this day, I'm still making residuals off film and books. And so people are always so quick to be like, you got to let it go. You need to move on. You know, that part of my life will always be part of my life. And it still brings me a, a huge income. And even though now my life is dramatically different, um, you know, it doesn't change what happened six years ago or the aftermath whatsoever. The good thing that came out of that relationship and everything that happened is one, I now live in my own truth. I live in a world of truth where no one can do anything to me because my whole life is out there with a simple Google click. And so I can't, become, I can't adapt. I can't change. I can't be something I'm not because it's all out there for someone to see. And it forced me to get help. It forced me to deal with borderline personality disorder. It forced me to deal with the unhealthy roller coaster ride of chaos that I was so used to most of my life. And 
it was time to get off the ride. When you talk about the help that you got and professional help, what did that look like for you? Because there's so many people out there struggling with borderline personality disorder that one don't even know it's undiagnosed. They, they're completely unaware. They're being called crazy. They've been ostracized by their friends uh, and they're using uh, drugs and, and alcohol and sex to, to, to medicate themselves and try to numb themselves. Uh, what, what did that process look like for you? What did the help look like? It was bumpy in the beginning for sure. Um, because no one wants to admit because of the stigma that's attached to mental illness that they have it. And because we don't talk about it, because it's so stigmatized, it's what makes it so people kill themselves. And I, I wasn't, even though I was getting help, I wasn't necessarily ready to receive it. And so it was, it was still a bumpy ride. Um, and I'll never forget that day in my psychi my psychiatrist when it got to the point where my doctor was like, you, I'm either going to put you back in some kind of mental stability institution or you're going to get help and see a psychiatrist today or I'm not going to let you leave this office because I'd gotten to the point where I wanted I didn't want to kill myself, but I still wanted to die. I went to bed every night just wishing I wouldn't wake up. And I was honest with my doctor, but, you know, what's a doctor to do with that? When I went and saw my psychiatrist, I hated him. But that was the best thing that could have ever happened. He told me I was delusional and I had illusions of grandeur. And I was like, fuck you. Like, uh, who are you? He thought everything about my life was a lie. You know, obviously within time, he learned that it wasn't, but it took someone not taking my bullshit to really make me wake up. And in that same period of time, I read a book called Fast Girl by Favor Hamilton, who was another Olympian who has bipolar disorder. And Everything in her book, even though it was a different, different diagnosis, was my life. I related to her. I reached out to her. She reached back out to me. It was life-changing. And now I didn't feel alone. And her book made me realize that I was going to be okay. And it, it started slowly, but I went on medication um, for depression, for anxiety. Um, and it was, it was life-changing. It really made it so I didn't feel everything that happened to extremes. It made it so I wasn't like holding in all this emotional garbage. And then someone does something so off the cuff that has nothing to do with anything. And then I blow up. Those days were gone. And it made it so when I embarked on dating again, I, I could see, I could see reality. I could see, and I dated someone in that after a few months of being on medication, that was a good man. We didn't end up 
working out, he broke up with me, but not because anybody cheated, not because anything was wrong. He just wasn't ready for a serious relationship. He knew everything about me. There was no secrets. And it was right before Christmas, which it seems like that would be devastating. I didn't even tell anybody till after Christmas because I didn't want to ruin the holidays, but I was okay. That first night, I cried my eyes out. And, but I realized he'd given me a gift of knowing what it was like to date someone that was worthy of my love, unlike a lifetime of trying to find myself in other people, trying to identify or create something. You know, I was like the runaway bride. Whoever I dated, that's how I. I liked what they liked. I became what they liked. I I liked everything they liked. And so everything that drew them to me quickly goes away because I become everything I think they want in my head. And that's not ultimately what people want, but that's how I knew to be. I was always adapting, becoming. And, you know, all of a sudden I didn't have to do those things. And you know, I'm not saying that every day was perfect by any stretch, um, but I didn't have to feel stuff and I didn't feel like I wanted to die every single day. I didn't, I no longer felt like I wanted to go to bed and not wake up. And that was great. It was awesome. And every year going forward, there's been ups and downs. There's been things that were um, big events that happened, nothing publicly per se, but things that sent me off center, but I dealt with them and I didn't deal with them by wanting to kill myself. I dealt with them like normal people. One of the things I learned was, um, DBT therapy so that when I start feeling these thoughts or, you know, things don't seem quite logical or right, I'm aware of it. And I'm like, Taylor, we need to back up. This isn't exactly what's happening. And, you know, with those tools and with the medication regimen I'm on, it was doing good. And then the final component that came in that gave me life was giving back, was telling my story but telling my story as a cautionary tale so that somebody else didn't have to go through it. Talking about mental illness and it's okay because you can live with mental illness. You can become a, a viable human being that doesn't have to depend on other people for their worth. And in sharing my story and getting involved in advocacy and activism, I started volunteering with like Capital Pride, um, with Capital Trans Pride. I started taking um, interviews that were more about my activism, my advocacy. And then I started showing up. I was visible. I told my stories. And, you know, every year since 2016, it's gotten stronger and stronger and stronger. Now, I'm part of the marketing team for Capital Pride. I'm an executive producer for Capital Trans Pride. I'm the president of Flux, which is part of AIDS Healthcare Foundation. 
to raise the visibility of trans and gender nonconforming people through advocacy and marketing um, and creating safe space. Um, I've won a million awards for the work I do. I champion for black and brown trans women every single day. And because I don't, I don't want, it's bad enough in this country to not be valued by government because of the color of your skin. And then to be trans on top of that, it's like you have a bullseye on your back and we shouldn't have these double digit murders every year of black trans women. And so these, these things that I can make a difference in have become my work. And now I'm the transgender health coordinator for a nonprofit that's black led. Um, you know, my life has meaning and there's a lot to be said about giving back and doing good works. I did it in the beginning to make up for my imperfections because I felt like I was bad and wrong and all these things. But I've since learned that there's just something that feels good about being there for other people. And it's so simple to tell your story. And then that person, that girl, that boy, that non-binary person, that that they, them, theirs in Nebraska, all of a sudden sees themselves and realizes they're not alone. They don't have to kill themselves. They don't have to live a certain way. They don't have to take the rejection and all of these things that have been created in their their surroundings that there is hope, that there are resources, that there is a way out that doesn't involve ending your life. What a powerful message. And I don't know if you have extra time. I almost feel like we could, we could end it right there. But I'm also would be fascinated about your childhood and growing up and how what the social implications being in school. We hear about we hear so much about kids who are transgendered being bullied. What was your experience growing up as a, as a child from your family and from schools? And, and how did you navigate that? Um, in the beginning, um, I knew who I was. So I was raised as a girl um, in fourth grade. Um, my grandparents struggled with it and I was unaware of the things that happened to me when I was born. I struggled with urinating and had to have surgeries nonstop throughout my childhood. Um, I had to take medications, but I didn't know what they were for. And in fourth grade, they cut all my hair off and they put me in private school and made me wear a boy uniform. Fourth grade was brutal. Um, and Taylor, I'm sorry, I don't want to cut you off, but but I realized um, to to even go because you're talking about uh, problems urinating, etc. Like there's such a, a physiological component that I, I feel like a lot of listeners don't understand yet about transgender, intersex. If you can go into more detail about because you talked about you were born with, uh, did you say mixed genitalia? Ambiguous. Ambiguous genitalia. Okay, so can you talk to us more about the the genetic component and how you were born and 
because I, there are so many people I know who have been born like that, and, and this could just give so much clarity to, for people who have no clue and never have had this discussion outside of male, female. Um, there's like 50 varia- 55 plus variations of intersex and gender. And what I am is called mosaic. And I had ambiguous genitalia. It wasn't like you could look at me when I was born and be like, oh, that's a boy, that's a girl. And, you know, back then in the early 70s, you know, doctors made a decision and they had a saying, sew a, sew a hole or make a pole. And whichever was easier is what got done. And it wasn't until right before puberty that, you know, things started coming to a head and all those surgeries were because my urethra was messed up. It turned out that I had a uterus. It turned out I, I didn't have testes. I, there was nothing but ovarian and testicular tissue. Um, I didn't have what people would traditionally think of as a penis. Um, but I, my, my vagina had been sewn and closed as an infant. And it was like, all of a sudden the heavens opened up and it's like, oh my God, I've spent all these years being told something's wrong with me and I'm bad. And in reality, I was lied to and there was reasons why I felt the way I felt and who I was. And at that point, um, my name was legally changed. My gender was modified on my birth certificate. Um, I went on um, blockers and eventually on hormones. And as soon as I was old enough, Um, I had corrective surgery to make me completely anatomically female, but biologically I possess XX and XY chromosomes. So from a science standpoint, I'm not female and I'm not male. Um, I'm intersex. Um, people used to refer to it as hermaphrodite, but that's, that's not a politically correct term because when I hear that word, I think of the circus and a freak show and how we were portrayed in media and, and in life once upon a time. And that's not, most intersex people live stealth. A lot of them don't even know they're intersex till the day they die. A lot of them have had gender mutilation surgery. And at some point in their life, it unravels. And then they're like, oh my God, I was always a girl. I was always a boy. And then there's intersex people that that's what they are. They're intersex. They aren't male or female. They are intersex. And it's so hard for people at times to wrap their head around that. And then if you're on the gender spectrum, you know, transgender is there. Gender nonconforming, non-binary, gender fluid. You know, we have a lot of terms now for the different things that people identify as. And we have a government and an administration that want to erase that, take those rights away. Um, But the reality is it's not a mental illness when you're transgender. A lot of times it's easier for people to come to terms with intersex because it's quote unquote medically diagnosed. It's a physical something 
because there's so many different variations. Um, but at the end of the day, we're all on that spectrum of gender. And I think most people would be surprised to find out that they may not be as male or female as they once. It's not all or nothing. There's a lot of in between. And I was raised to feel like there was something wrong with me and that I needed to be fixed and corrected. And once I realized and had the knowledge that there was nothing wrong with me, that I didn't need to be fixed. The people around me needed to be catapulted out of their binary thinking. It, it changed my world. When you were in, so when you were in, uh, like you said, like you, you knew you were a girl, a woman. And so in, in school, were there any uh, issues that showed up in school? You were talking about having trouble urinating. Um, at, what, was, what was the social climate like for you at that point as a kid? In my younger years, I guess some people knew what was going on, but I was a kid. I didn't know it. I, I mean, I dressed like a girl, I had girl clothes. Um, but there was people that I guess nowadays we would use the term, they clocked me, I guess. Um, once I got past middle school, um, junior high and high school, um, I was a girl again. And I mean, presenting as a girl because I wasn't going to live a lie and be something I wasn't. And, you know, school was just the normal problems that it is for anybody else because I didn't allow my, my gender or my difference to affect it. Um, most of the time people were unaware, um, to the point of like gym class, I got changed in the office of the teacher. Um, I didn't use the same bathrooms that other students used. I used a private one. Um, so that was kind of like the only difference, but it wasn't something that was like magnified or really had a lot of light shed on it. And then when I was 15, I left home and I emancipated. I took my family to court and I got custody of myself. And from then on out, I, I drove the vehicle of my life. Um, and from then on, like I said, I lived stealth, um, even before having surgery and certainly after. Um, but even before I had corrective surgery, the men I dated would, would swear on their, their life, their mama, their Bible, their kids, that I was all woman. They did not, I never let anybody know. Um, I was very good at keeping my secrets. And then once I had surgery, in 94, that was all she wrote. Um, at that point, the only thing I, the only thing I thought I owed someone is to tell them that I couldn't have children. Other than that, I felt like my past had no bearing on my future. I didn't owe someone that explanation. I didn't. And, you know, there's a lot of conversation about disclosure these days and, I'm all over the place. I still, to this day, even with everything great that's happening or has happened, I still would rather 
be stealth. I still wish people didn't know. Um, because on some level, we live in a world where whatever is different about you, whatever is considered not the norm, you're made to feel less than. And there's still times where I feel that. I feel that difference. And it's in me. It's not that anybody else is making me feel that way. I mean, I have great friends. I have an incredible support system. I have a chosen family that is everything. Um, I have a husband that I love that adores me. I have two children that I swear hang the moon every day. And, you know, it's wonderful. It's a great place to be in, but it doesn't mean that I no longer have mental illness. It doesn't mean that I don't deal with problems. It doesn't mean that I still don't, that I still do need a therapist. I still need to talk to someone. I still need to keep a journal. I still need to keep a watchful eye on the fact that I will have borderline personality disorder until the day I die. Um, but that death is not going to be at my own hands. Um, you know, I'm not going to allow the world to dictate how I see myself or who I am. Um, you know, the one good thing about Caitlyn Jenner, even though her story isn't relatable to most people because of her wealth, um, no one can say they don't know a transgender person anymore. So true. When you talk about journaling, what does that look like for you? I, I try to journal on a daily basis. Are you journaling every day, twice a day, once a week? What? How do you use journaling to help you? I do it when it's necessary. Um, there's times where it's necessary every day. Um, but most of the time, it's... Um, it's just when needed there there's times where I know that there's too much in my head. There's too much in my thoughts that I need to put it down on paper so that I can see it, own it and work through it, whatever that's going to mean for that situation. Cause sometimes it's just not, it's not the true reality of what's going on, but I have to acknowledge it's what I'm feeling and there's strength in that. There's power in that. Um, and it's my private journal. And a lot of times that's what I take to therapy to talk to someone that is a professional. My therapist doesn't tell me what to do. They listen. They give me the tools needed to be able to speak for myself what is right and what is the right direction to go. And that's worth its weight in gold. Um, but at the, we, we got to get away from people thinking there's something wrong with help. There's something wrong with talking about mental illness. Um, that stigma really needs to be erased. And now in the age of technology, you don't even have to go to a therapist. You can text them. You can virtually Zoom with them. I mean, you have a lot of options. Um, so there's no excuse 
for not getting help, whatever that might look like for you, because it's different for everybody. There's just like we're all unique in our own way. So is therapy. So is getting better. So is mental illness and stigma. They all look different to each person. Having two children, what are some of the things or one thing that you're very intentional about in terms of raising them? to be uh, mentally healthy, whether it's how they talk to themselves or talk to other people or behaviors or routines? What are the things that you're intentionally wanting to instill in your two children? We have a very open dialogue. We talk about everything. There, It is a safe space. So regardless of what you want to talk about or need to talk about, it's okay. Um, and love is unconditional in this house. And that's important. Um, love should never be conditional. And for them, because of my life and the work I do, they're exposed to diversity every single day. I talk about my work. I talk about the things I do. I brought them to pride. I brought them to trans events. I brought them to intersect stuff. They've heard my interviews. Um, We've been very honest with them about my past. Um, and their response was, oh, okay. It wasn't a big deal to them in any way, shape, or form. I love that. It, hate is taught. Hate is taught. Uh, please, can, can you tell us uh, where people can get your book, the name of your book, all your books, and where people can find you if they want to reach out? My books are available wherever books are sold, um, but I still encourage people to go through taylorleannechandler.com. Everything is in one place, um, and you can also get personalized um, signed copies from me. My most recent book is a collaboration, and it's called Transcestors, Volume 1, and it's a collection of stories by trans and intersex elders talking about their life and their story so that once again, somebody doesn't feel alone. And last but next oh. year, next year, my fourth and fifth book are coming out. I, I have another book that's a collab coming out. That's about um, sexual trauma and getting back to intimacy with August McLaughlin, who does girl boner radio. And then I'm doing my complete memoir beyond the gold, my story. Um, because enough time has passed, I can tell my story without people weaponizing it and making it seem like I'm outing people per se. Because the people I dated and loved and married at the time, I wasn't strong enough or able to love them enough or myself to be honest with all of me. And so they they weren't aware of my past. And so there's no shame in that. Um, and there's nothing to weaponize. And so now it's time to tell my story. I love that. And, and just as a, a, a slight summary for the listeners out there in terms of how you were able to get yourself in the place that you are now, you, you know, you went to therapy, took, or you're, you're taking meds, uh, dialectal behavioral therapy, you guys can yep. look that up. It's similar to cognitive behavioral therapy, um, volunteering, focusing on activism, showing up, 
Life has meaning when you're when you make it about being there for other people. And also you told your story. You keep telling your story and your journaling. Um, these are these are all things that are in the the grasp of of you, the listener. These are all actionable things. It starts with you having to, to you know take a, a step forward. Uh, Taylor, I asked this question of all my listeners. Uh, well, first of all, is there anything that I'm missing from that, Taylor? Is there, are there any other steps in there that you took that uh, helped you know keep you going? To this day, you're married with two kids, or is there anything else in there that we that we missed? No, I mean that was a great summary. I like how you put that together. Um, that there's power in in the words we speak into into reality. Last question I want to ask, and I ask this of all my guests because I always feel like there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Taylor? You know, it's cliche, but it does get better. I'm 47 years old, and all those times that I thought life was at its end, that there was nothing left, that it was the abyss, and I wanted to just sink into it, it did get better. Um when you hit bottom, it truly is the only way you can go is up. And it may take a lot of work, but it's worth the journey. You know, we're all, we all are worthy and deserving of love, but that love starts with us. And sometimes that has to be taught. It's not always intuitive to who we are. Taylor Chandler. Leanne Chandler, thank you so much for taking this time out. Thank you so much to listeners for listening in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help for you calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or the 1-800-273-TALK or the there's the Trevor Project. All those numbers are listed in my show notes and in all of the show notes. So whether you need to talk or text or group, all that information, if you're international, overseas, We have those links in all of the show notes. There's no excuse for you not to get help. Uh, You can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Taylor. Thank you. Have a great night. You too.